Isn't that exciting? Two new elders to consider. Mark chapter 3 is where we are this morning as we continue to see the ministry of Christ unfold. The challenges that come with what he's trying to accomplish in the work of the kingdom of God. I am always, well, that's an, an ultimate word, isn't it? Always and never. You're not supposed to apparently use those. But I am always, I guess, amazed at the endless um, application of Scripture that can be seen, something that was written uh, in antiquity and how it testifies to itself. Uh, Hebrews testifies to this, uh, the word being living and active, uh, Hebrews 4 I believe it's the understanding that John began his gospel with that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This notion that it's eternal, it's everlasting. And then when you get to that second verse in, in the gospel of John, he switches and he says, He, instead of the Word, He was in the beginning with God. Referring to Christ Himself. The word is Jesus Christ, and that's where Mark began in the very first sentence in the very first opening of Mark chapter 3. And I just so appreciate that that's, that's the premise of this entire book, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so he doesn't trick you, he doesn't do anything, he just, this is it right up front. And then the rest of these 16 chapters, he goes to unfold that and what that looks like the foundation that Mark is establishing, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, a remarkable claim. When you put those two forms together of the Word and the fact that it's living and active, and this perfect union in the picture and perfection of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the God-man Jesus Christ, you get this living, active, eternal concept in your life Therefore, the principles you find when you open up Scripture are just that to you. Even though they've been written so long ago, they are always applicable if you look, if you allow the Holy Spirit to move and transform you in the method of teaching and growing you through the Word. That's been true the day these words were spoken, the day they were then written, up until this very moment that you and I are addressing them. And they will continue until Christ comes again. That to me is remarkable. Why? Well, what I'm inferring is what we see in our culture today. Call it cancel culture, cart, whatever you want, but the methods in which those use such tools to drive their particular point and the particular point of view that they want to be heard or understood. A certain narrative or a certain truth, if you will, to go that far, to use that word. But I just want to bring to your mind when Culture separates itself from the reality of who God is. Truth, another word, the capital T of that word. All that's left is power. And those who wield it advance their own ideas of what truth is, small t, in their own reality. And when that happens, as we shared before, human flourishing suffers. Why? Because when you combine Christ, the truth and power, the, the closer you are to that, the more humans just in general, will flourish. God sends His grace on the righteous and the unrighteous. All those things reign on the just and the unjust. All those things. And the closer you are to what that means, the more human flourishing possible. Therefore, that's true. The opposite is also true. The farther away you get from who God is, 
the less it resembles truth. Like taking a picture, if you will, uh, either photography or, or painting, and then trying to make a copy. And even though that first copy is going to be pretty remarkable and pretty close, there'll be some little imperfections, probably so much that you wouldn't notice. But if you begin to take a copy of the copy of the copy and then string that out over generations, what you end up with is probably nothing look like what the original was meant to be. Even more specifically, in the context of our culture, what we saw happen this past week of a horrible, wicked, savage, evil shooting in Atlanta that took place. And then if you were reading or you watched or you saw that act get used to push a particular group's narrative to insinuate, slander, or in essence, cancel another. We need to be mindful of something as Christian people. Solomon said it so clearly if you've read Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new under the sun. (laughs) He says this, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun, the preacher says, as he refers to himself. Then if you would continue to read that book, not an easy book to get through, all is vanity. And he explains that, which we won't have time to do today. So this morning I'd like us to recognize a couple principles in our text from Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 30. First comes in the form of a question. What are you to make of Christ? The second is a Jesus tactic that he uses in response to that question. The first principle, what are you to make of Christ? And in essence, you'll see in our text, when you get the wrong answer, what is Jesus' tactic to overcome that? So look in Mark chapter 3, if you would, and follow along, beginning in verse 20. Remember, we left off Jesus' called his 12 disciples. He's beginning to move out in his ministry. The kingdom of God is now expanding and growing, and he is bringing 12 new men on. And he says this in verse 20, after all of that, they went home. Presumably, maybe Peter's house, we don't know. Back up in Galilee is where they are. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. And he called them to him. Jesus, he's referring, Jesus called them to himself to say this parable. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to his end. But no one can enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Just a quick caveat, that's exactly what Jesus has been doing. He's the stronger of the two. And Jesus has been able to plunder, if you will, the house of Satan with all the miracles and all the things that he's been doing up until this point. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whoever blasphemies blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. 
that they were saying he has an unclean spirit. There's a story within a story here, and we'll get to the second part of that next week, hopefully. But I just want to deal with these two principles this morning that are addressed in this text. What are you to make of Jesus? This continually comes up as Jesus preaches and teaches that he is bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the, the representative culture that was meant to expect him to come to them. Remember, Moses says, there is going to become one after me like me. Watch for him. Look for him. And so when that person comes, there's some difficulty in actually recognizing who he is. So I just want to share this first principle. Who are you to make of Jesus? It comes in three forms. And I just call them dynamics or answers, which someone can conclude. Maybe someone you'll be at work tomorrow. One is a family dynamic, one's the power dynamic, and one's a truth dynamic. Family dynamic, power dynamics, or truth dynamic. C.S. Lewis, if you've read God in the Dock, which I would encourage you to read, that's his argument and his claim, his apologetic claim. Either Jesus is just a complete madman, he's a liar, or he is in fact who he says he is, Lord. And he'll go into great depth and detail. <laughs> it's a good read. Let's first look at this family dynamic. It's so interesting that you have your own flesh and blood that you grew up with get to a place and come to a point where they're insinuating that you're just out of your mind. The word insane. Out of yourself. That's the reference. That's the narrative, in other words, the family is going with. That's the method in which they pursue. Why? Why is this something they're pursuing? Because Jesus is making himself out to be God. That and alone in itself, if you were to hear someone say that today, would make you go, <laughs> wow, right? You would be thrown off if someone here or someone you know or work with is, you know, claims to make the claim that they are Christ. You would immediately put them, whether thinkingly or verbally, you would immediately put them in a category, wouldn't you? His family was no different. And as soon as he makes the connection, by the way, that he himself is God, here's what that eliminates in your life and anybody else's life. It is therefore impossible for anyone else to consider Jesus just a good teacher just some moral guru or spiritual leader to follow. He purposely, I believe, eliminates all of those options of other so-called religious leaders to push the point for you to come to the place to convictingly decide this question, who Christ is. Consider for a moment what it would be like to raise a perfect child. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're all thinking, what? Yeah, not yours, <laughs> not mine, not that you were one. My grandkids are close, though. <laughs> How odd would it have been in that family dynamic or in his own hometown of Nazareth to grow up that way Always knowing the right answer, that would get annoying, wouldn't it? <laughs> and not just knowing the right answer, but always 
projecting the right answer to you as a parent in perfect authority and perfect respect in, in every possible way, not being derogatory in any fashion. But I have this tendency in my own life to probably want to take it that way <laughs> as a parent. To be able to settle any argument in the family perfectly <laughs> with his other siblings. Or if you came and had a disagreement as a child, or if you have especially if multiple things happening in, in your family and accusations, I don't know about your family, probably not, this is probably just in mine, but blame. It was Dale's fault. <laughs> what? Imagine that. Jesus did it. <laughs> ah, yeah. And then to have Mary go, oh, seriously, I don't think so. <laughs> How about let's ask Jesus? He knows everything. <laughs> I wonder if this would have made him unrelatable to his own family. You wonder how Mary and Joseph, as they were growing up, and presumably at this point we know Joseph has probably passed away, how they would have expressed who Jesus was to the rest of the kids. Hey, um, we need to talk, right? Your older brother, he's God. How do you think that'd go over? I can give you a little point on how it probably would go over in a human form. Just go back to Genesis and read Joseph. Joseph being the favorite of the father, the favorite of the son, the favorite of all those, and all those things being given to that son, and the enmity and the bitterness that caused in that family. And you can read just the turmoil and the dysfunction that took place in that family alone. And what did they try to do to Joseph? Because... Here comes that dreamer, right? I would encourage you to read that. That's how the world, a family, treats what's perfect in some sense. We know Jesus was at least one of seven. You go to Mark chapter 6 whenever we get there in the next year or two. <laughs> he had at least four brothers, and they're listed there. And then Mark includes sisters, it's plural. Probably more than just two sisters, but it was a decent-sized family. We also know if you go to John chapter 7 that none of them believed who he was. We know that. And by the way, what evidence do we have that Jesus was actually mad as he was growing up? We know very little about his growing up years, but let's point this out, shall we? Crazy doesn't do the things Jesus did does it? Crazy doesn't feed thousands. Crazy doesn't call children up on your lap to bless them. Crazy doesn't heal people of their physical ailments. Crazy doesn't have the power to demand and tell demons what to do and when to do it. We know for sure Mary wasn't part of this, or at least this conscience idea of him being crazy. She wouldn't have considered this knowing what we know an angel coming to her and Joseph, for that matter, letting them know who this to be born to them was going to be. In fact, it says she hid those things or kept those things in her heart. Probably not something you're going to advertise as a mom, right? You probably wouldn't be doing that. In fact, you get a little picture, really, all the picture we have of this process is, is when Jesus goes to the temple, when he 
stays there and, and the panic that comes is this whole caravan and the family clan and everybody's going back home and, and Jesus stays. Have you ever left your kid somewhere? <laughs> that sinking feeling, I thought you picked him up. I thought you had him. And all of a sudden it is on, isn't it? It is just the, the, everything in you just gets elevated instantly. And so they go back and he's like, I'm just about my father's business. What did Jesus think of his siblings? How much love did he have for them, even though at this moment they're thinking he's mad? Well, you have to go after the resurrection to see that in Acts chapter 1. They are there in the upper room with the 120 is where they are. And Jesus appears to 500 also before he gets there even, presumably, to them as well. It seems less of a following though, doesn't it, than what we've been led to believe Mark has been giving us up to this point, crowds and crowds. I mean, think about when you go on vacation, when you get back, what do you feel like? <laughs> I need another vacation. <laughs> it's exhausting, isn't it? They've been out and about preaching. He's called the 12. They've gone out all over the countryside. They come back and he can't even get in and eat. He can't even just physically provide for himself. There's so many people. And then when you get to the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection, he's appearing to people and showing himself the risen Savior. Let's be generous. You have at least maybe 700 people now. Seems far less of a crowd, doesn't it? We know at least two of his brothers were there, James and Jude. And you can read their book, if you will, if you go to the end of the New Testament, those are Jesus' two brothers, James and the book of Jude. Both now believers. How do you know? I would encourage you just read the first sentence in the, both of those verses or both of that, those, that, that opening dialogue that they both give. How do they describe themselves? Servants of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Well, that tells us a couple things. One, don't give up on your family members who don't know Christ. Pray for them. Give an answer to, to them to, to be reasonable. We'll get to that in just a minute. But so much for Jesus being mad and out of his mind at that point when his own family now recognizes who he is. So we can cross that one off. The second dynamic is this power dynamic. And this is where Jesus spends most of his time in this section making up a larger part of what we'll look at. What is this power dynamic? Well, honestly, if Jesus was odd and alienated growing up, imagine what it would be like to follow him and to begin a ministry after him. This new kingdom. That's what Jesus is accomplishing. Everything about the Old Covenant, everything about the Old Testament, every possible means in which that was culminating into one point in history, one person in history, in the God-man Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment all. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill all of it. Now you consider that in a Jewish culture. You try to you know, think about that in terms of somebody completely unbending what you believe. Doesn't matter what it is, the, the topic is irrelevant almost, but you are so convicted that this is the truth, and then someone shows up in your life and goes, I'm the fulfillment of that, and that's going to stop, and this is how it's going to go. How would you think and feel? You'd be a little disconcerned, weren't you? It'd be a little off putting, don't you think? 
that's what you're asking those people where you live, work, and play to get to, to come to, to come to know who Christ is. That's what you did before you were in Christ, wasn't it? You had this belief system, you had this set of thoughts and these ideals and all these things that you thought were true life and then someone says, hey, no, that's not the truth, it's this. And you have to rethink everything. That comes only by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the way. But that's the process. And when that process digs its heels in and we recognize if I actually do this, I may have to change. I may have to lose some things. Of course, when you're on that side of it, you're thinking losing things, that's uncomfortable. Not realizing what you're going to gain is far better than what you're actually losing. Most of all, in this case with these Jewish leaders, what are they losing that they love so much? Power. Luke 4.25, turn there. You'll get an example of this. This is Jesus back in Nazareth. He's in his hometown. He's been invited to speak. I don't read all of this, but he is given a scroll and he purposely looks for a section in Isaiah. And he reads that section. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back, and he says this, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Man, that had got everybody's attention. You don't understand what he's making the claim again, that he is God. And look down as he continues. He's pushing the point. They saw him grow up. They knew him. This was this little kid that helped Joseph, the carpenter's kid. And he pushes the point. Doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Okay? No prophet is acceptable in his own town. And this is where he goes. Verse 25. But in truth, here's the personification of the truth. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut three years and six months and a great famine came all over the land. That would immediately brought to mind some story, chances are, in their own history. They would have heard stories of generations and grandparents and great-grandparents of, of that very moment. Consider that. Three and a half years, no rain, what that does to your farm, what that does to everything about you, what that does to, the, to, to everybody going through a pandemic, if you will. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. He continues, there were many lepers as well in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. Why is that so significant? And if you read, that just hacks them off. It just totally ticks this crowd in that particular church. So what do they try to do? They try to grab him. They take him to the highest point in Nazareth and chuck him off the cliff so he dies. Why? Because he's judging them. Tyre and Sidon, that's not part of Jewish history, culture. In fact, they were outside of the Old Covenant. They weren't even part of that. Syria and the Assyrians, mortal enemies. God uses them to judge the nation. 
And what is the inference he's making? My prophets went there, not here. He's judging them. He's indicting them for their unbelief. So they try to do what power people do. Those that would like to cancel people. They try to throw them off a cliff. But in his power, you have to assume, it says, if you read the end of that, that he passed through them. He was not in control, and he was in control of everything about the timing of his death, and it wasn't going to be that day. So something transpired, but we're not given details in. And when that tactic doesn't work, you get verse 22 of Mark chapter 3. When you can't deal with it that way, you have to go a different route. And the tactic is to make Jesus out to be a liar. You're not God, in other words. In fact, let's be explicit. You're Satan is what the inference is. That's how you're doing all these miracles. Everything we're compiling, this, this, this just plethora of evidence. Everybody wants evidence. Oh, prove to me God exists. Really? Listen, everybody that tries to do that, they have this. everybody has an escape mechanism. You have one too in different arenas of life. We all have this escape mechanism when there's something that confronts us or we don't want to agree with or something. We try to massage it, get around it, go under it over it in some fashion to get around the fact that this is staring us right in the face. And all this evidence is piling up, all the miracles, everything he is doing, these people coming to him. And they claim it's just of Satan. Verse 30 because he has an unclean spirit. See, remember when we talked about when you separate truth and power? Truth is what gets lost. Truth gets twisted. It gets destroyed. It gets manipulated, if you will. It gets sacrificed on the altar of idolatry, namely the worship of lesser gods that we simple humans create to our own liking. Why would they push this point? I think a lot of it has to do with what was happening with the crowd. Once again, it's huge, and this is not the first time. And when you get big crowds and someone doing amazing, unexplainable, supernatural things, they want something to happen. It's this recognition that this could be the Christ. That creates a power dynamic in the system that they were living in that was disconcerting to the Jewish leaders. Left to itself, that crowd would have wanted to bring Jesus to be king, to let him ascend to the throne, that this is the one, this is the one that's going to save us, this is the one that's going to drive out Rome. So the size, the pressure of the crowd, and the power that was building behind what Jesus was doing would have shocked the Jewish leaders, I believe. This enormous push, in other words, to enthrone Christ. But Jesus doesn't need them to do that. He, in fact, is looking for real conversions of the heart in faith, not this enthusiastic spectacularism and circus show, if you will, of all the energy that gets surrounded by that. This, by the way, is not the only time this narrative to cancel Jesus was used. If you go to Luke 15, or I'm sorry, Luke 11:15, 15, 
But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. This is a different time. Jesus in Mark chapter 3 is in Galilee, way up yonder, way up north of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 11, and he's in Judea once again. John 10, 20, many of them said he has a demon. He is insane. Why listen to him? Don't pay attention to him. See, there is nothing new under the sun. This is their means in which to cancel. What that should remind us or let us know or give some insight to is that there was a network in, without the internet, without newspapers, without any broadcast that this was getting around. When Jesus shows up to your town, this is how he's going to do things. It's really by Satan he's doing all of this. So the Jewish leaders got the word out and it spread like wildfire. Like the parable Jesus shared of the sower who show, sows good seed in the soil. And then at nighttime, the enemy comes in and sows all kinds of weeds. It's like that. See, all of which points to the power dynamic and their use of propaganda to cast out, to dissuade, to denigrate at all costs the truth. It's all about power. It's all about pushing a particular point, and I have to control that. And is that not what you're seeing in our culture? And have seen for quite some time. It causes all sorts of confusion. And we give it a name. Cancel culture. It's not new. Here's the third dynamic. That is Jesus' claim that he is the I am. Lord. Verse 28 and 29. That's the inference here. All sins will be forgiven. Well, who can do that? Who's only capable of doing that? They understood that that is only an act of God. They understood exactly what that meant. He pushes this too in Luke chapter 5, verse 24. But that you may know. I want you to know, Jesus says, that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's declaring this. And in that declaration, he's making this this. This unification that only God, they understand, only God can forgive sins with that. So you know it. I have the power to forgive sins. He tells this paralytic guy to get up, take your bed, and go home. And instantly his legs, I don't know if they pop, you know, snap, crack them, and pop like Rice Krispies. That just kind of, ugh. <laughs> but somehow they were restored instantly, and he got up and was able to walk instantly. No rehab, no weeks of therapy, none of that stuff. All that being done with the power of the Holy Spirit. Up until this point, this is about roughly a year into Jesus' ministry by the time we get to Mark 3. Of the three and a half roughly years that Jesus is in ministry, about half of that is spent up in this Galilee region north, way north, up in the Sea of Galilee, all around the countryside. And so far we only hear testimonies of just a few. Who were those? Do you remember? You heard the first testimony when Jesus was baptized, didn't we? This is my son. That was God's testimony of his one and only son. And then from then, what's the other testimony here about who Jesus is so far? Demons. The demonic. Spiritual world has a clear picture and understanding of who he is. It is not until Mark chapter 15, ironically enough, that you get a human being confessing that Jesus Christ, truly this was the Son of God. And who's that by? I love this connection. 
That'll take, I don't know, that's five years away probably. Who knows? <laughs> it's a Roman soldier that says that. Who is Mark writing to? Romans. What do you think the point he's trying to make there? That's the only testimony we have. The pure teaching of the Word of God, this, this ultimate teaching that Jesus expounds is completely different than anything anyone else has ever heard. He speaks with authority. It's this ultimate truth, yes, no, black, white kind of teaching, and it's off-putting to people. This is the truth, in other words. This is the way you should go, he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except for me. Those are ultimate standards, aren't they? Those are ultimate commitments. He says this in so many words. You try to keep your own life, and you're going to lose it. Give yourself away, and you'll save it. If you're ashamed of me, if you walk away from this ministry and the teaching and his call to repent, you turn the other way, I will be ashamed of you and turn from you also. Whatever's keeping you from me, cut it off. Referring to sin in your life, throw it away, get rid of it. It is that important for you to do. Put yourself first, you're going to be last. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will wipe, out, wipe away all your sins because I can do that. I am the rebirth. I am the new life. I am the one who has overcome the world. Those are ultimate statements and ultimate scare people to death. That's what the truth does. That's why the world is so afraid. Because when confronted with the truth, you're left with only a couple options to come to terms with it or not. How does Jesus address this principle of is he mad, is he just a liar and using Satan's power or is in fact truly Lord? That's the bulk of this section. Jesus' tactic, principle number two. Something you and I should learn, something that you and I should grow in and understand because you and I need to use this. What does Jesus do first? Verse 23. He called them to himself. Step number one, don't run, don't hide, confront. He calls them. He's calling their bluff, in other words. Okay, let's do this. Let's have this conversation. You really think I'm from Satan. And then he proceeds to just logically just completely, I mean, even the fishermen in the crowd could have understood the logic here, right? They would have understood this, whether it's Satan, whether it's your relationship as a, as a family, anything divided, it doesn't stand. None, you don't see that anywhere, that there's division. Nothing stands in division. Only unity allows for that. And so he doesn't back away. This is consistent, by the way, with what Ned shared, the Matthew 18 passage of how you and I confront if, you, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That's fun, isn't it? <laughs> now, in a Christian context, when you're giving or on the recipient end of that, 
it's a whole lot different than what the world does, should be. I need you to know and people in my life to be able to love me enough to come do this. I know exactly who I am and I know exactly what I deserve and I know exactly where I go when I get the blinders on and I get focused on something because that's all that's in there. My incredibly awesome, wonderful wife reminds me of this. You need to broaden your gaze. (laughs) Because sometimes it can be hurtful. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to hurt anybody else. I I don't want that in my life. But you and I both know what happens, don't we? And to have someone love you enough to confront you to share that. Well, what's my response? My response is recognizing what's taking place. It's not on a position of authority. Like Scripture says, your leaders don't lord it over you to put you in submission. It's this idea of perfecting you to holiness. Why do you think you're married to your spouse? What do you think her or his job is? (laughs) Not just to agitate you, to make you more holy. Think of it that way. (laughs) Exactly. Right? That's the method. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 2 when he confronts Peter. The difference being is Peter did something in public, so Paul addresses him in public. Peter's hanging out with all the Gentiles and having a grand old time until the Jews show up and he goes, "Uh uh-oh, I'm back over here. And Paul called him out. Not mean-spirited, not anything, but just as leadership to say, hey, what you just did is inappropriate. You're making this distinction between Jew and Gentile. In Christ, there is no distinction being made. This is one of the things that's being imported into the church in the 21st century because of this idea of cancel this and cancel that, that Jesus can be segmented. It is happening in this culture, in the church culture, in Christian culture, and it is not from God whatsoever. There is only one faith, one Lord, one baptism. We are all one in Christ. End of story. And anybody that's telling you anything different than that, I just need to take a breath. You need to mark as unfaithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we confront. Second thing Jesus does in this passage is he confronts the story. He challenges their own narrative. He doesn't go along with the premise in which they put forth. He doesn't agree with it, period. He doesn't even enter in in, in a discussion about it. I'm not going to use your definitions. I'm not going to use your story because it's not true to begin with. So he doesn't even go there. He doesn't let it stand. He opposes the lie. By the way, if you would like to read a good book, I've made reference before, but um, Live Not By Lies, I would encourage you to read. It takes a deep dive into this very concept. about confronting what we're confronting, and so on. Live not by lies. Um, Dreyer is his name. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 3, to deal with this first principle. First question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? When you go to 1 Peter 3.15, we kind of think that, oh, that's the apologetic scripture. Be able to give a reasonable answer to anyone who asks. Yep, that's true, but you skip the, very, the most important part. The most important part of that text is the very first part of that. He says, set Christ as Lord or honor Christ as as Lord. We talked about this last week. Stop, commit, 
Once you focus on who Jesus is, once you commit to him, once you know who he is, once you've been converted in Christ, everything else will fall into place. But if you skip that one, it, it, you'll just be tossed to and fro like James says. Every wind of doctrine that comes down the pike. Set him in your foundation. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Set him as Lord, and then you can be prepared to give an answer or defense, if you will, to anyone who asks, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's totally demolishing this premise. Doesn't mean they agree with it. You don't get to control that. He is just making the same defense. Give a reasonable answer. Guess what? It's your answer. I can't convince you. If I can change your mind, someone else will come along and change it back. Who knows? But this in Christ, this is a reasonable answer I can give you. It's rational, it's logical, it's sensible. Beyond that, I can't help you. And Jesus couldn't help them. Their hearts were so hard. How does Peter say to do all of that with gentleness and respect? How does Peter say it in Ephesians 4? Speak the truth how? In love. But be advised it won't be received that way. That alone will set you apart from the rest of the world and what's happening in our culture presently. There is no gentleness, it seems. Their lack of respect in conversation and different opinions. The power dynamic just opposes all that. So be prepared. That, I believe, is what we're seeing in our own day. Let me ask you something. How prepared are you with those broad, sweeping allegations that may come in your own life about your faith in Christ? The name-calling, the threats, potentially, when cancel culture shows up, or the promotion gets missed, or those types of things in life. See, truth is the only means in which you have to combat the godless power that's out there in life. Truth, just like Christ. And it sets people on edge, because they will say to you, who do you think you are? you think you have this ultimate truth? You, you think you know better than anybody else? Usually my answer is, oh, absolutely not. You have to know my story. If you have time, I'll share that with you. But I do know the one who does. It's not about me. It's about him. See, Jesus is still using his church. That's you, Christian. That's you, beloved, to use the power and the truth to come together to be the conscience of the world that has lost its way, especially in this culture who has jettisoned reality, God's reality in the present time that we live in. And what's taking place and the decisions that are made and what is deemed worthy. And you need to know why and how to counterbalance that. We are so far in a copy of a copy of a copy that it's been so distorted and we are so far away from the nature and presence of God. Why? Because when you get back to that, that's the most human flourishing that there possibly can be. Goodness, in other words. And that's what the world fears the most. But that's the power you've been given in the Holy Spirit. See, they will continue to distort the truth. That's not going to change. But what needs to change maybe more is that you and I are counted in this day and age. The lines in the sand are getting clearer and clearer. See, the real question is not 
what are we to make of Jesus truly? That just has an element of a man-centered theology that I get to decide. Like a fly on the back of an elephant deciding what he's going to do and make of this thing that he's on. The real question is, what is Jesus going to make of you? That's the real question. We'll talk about that next week.